Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study on the Christ-centered life. We've been in this, uh, we had one break, I think, during Memorial Day where uh, Chaplain John preached for us. But we've been looking at Ephesians for several weeks now. Uh, Next week, I hope you're able to come, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to talk about Christ-centered strength for the battle as we look at spiritual warfare. So far, we've talked about prayer. Paul has two major prayers in Ephesians that are very powerful, and we we looked at those. And then we took a couple of weeks to look at Ephesians 5 and uh, Christ-centered relationships, which we uh, talked about earlier. But today we're going to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture uh, to study and to look at as we talk about how, how we can have Christ-centered purpose. Uh, I think as we look at this passage together, I'm going to share three main uh, ways we, we can do that as God's people. I'll say this at the beginning, and, and many have said this before. If you look at living out the Christian life, you can simplify it in one way like this. It is on the one hand about the vertical, and it is on the other hand about the horizontal. What I mean by that is that Christianity is first and foremost about our relationship vertically with who? With God, and then horizontally with one another. Uh, This theme is seen throughout Scripture. In fact, remember when we looked at Genesis, I can't help but think about that once more. What was the theme? It was Adam's relationship first with God, then with his spouse, then with his children and other people. When you read through the Ten Commandments, you're going to notice that as you start on those first ones, he's going to talk about you're going to love God, you're going to have no other gods before Him. That's vertical. You're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's vertical. But then he's going to talk about things like honor your father and mother. That's horizontal. You're going to talk, he's going to talk about don't bear false witness, don't lie. That's horizontal. Do you see the pattern? When uh, one of the people in the New Testament asked, to, asked what was the greatest commandment, what did Jesus say? He, he said all the commandments could be summed up into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's vertical. You see that? And then what's the second, the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what? That's horizontal. When you look at Christ-centered purpose, that is the purpose. I can't answer, and I get that question a lot as a a minister, as a chaplain. What what does God want me to do? What is God's purpose for my life? I I can't give them all the details. Or they'll lay out a scenario and go, what should I do? Sometimes I don't know what to say. Because it's, it's not my life. I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure some of those things out in my own life. But I can say this for certainty. And I can stand on it. God wants us to have a relationship with Him and then a relationship with other people. Amen. When Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he has the same theme in mind. As he takes those first about three chapters of the book, I encourage you, it's a six-chapter book, I encourage you to read it and read it and read it again. It's one of those you can just, it's so deep you can go back to over and over. But in those first chapters, he goes through and talks about what does it mean to be saved? 
What has God done for us? The great passages like, you were dead in transgressions and sins, but God raised us up. That's in Ephesians 2. He says, he says that great statement, of, by grace are you saved through faith, and that none of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul is establishing the fact that God has stepped into time and He has done something for you and for me, in that He has provided salvation. That's the vertical. As Paul gets into chapters 4 and 5 and 6, and we've already talked about Christ-centered relationships, he talks about our purpose, and that begins to get the so what. God has saved us. We're His children. He says in one place in Ephesians 2, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul then in Ephesians 4, as we've already read a portion of that Scripture, he begins to lay out exactly uh, what those good works are. So I want you to uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read some of it together in the beginning here. And I'm going to begin in verse 1 to start off with in Ephesians chapter 4. And here's, here's what he says. Which I love, Paul. He says, therefore. He says, therefore, all through his book. He's always saying, therefore. I heard one person say, if you ever see a therefore, you need to ask the question, what is it therefore? <laughs> I say that because it's always good when you see Paul in, in the Bible saying, therefore, go back and say, well, what is he saying? So you go back, and that's why we went back and looked at a little bit about what Ephesians 1 through 3 were. But verse 1 in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. The King James says long-suffering, I believe, there. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, let's stop right there as we continue to look. Ephesians later on is going to talk about some gifts, some spiritual gifts. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit. First uh, Corinthians 3 puts it this way. It says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That is part of our Christ-centered purpose. And I'm going to say this to begin with. If we are going to have Christ-centered purpose, the first thing we have to do is this. This is point number one. We have to have unity with God and with each other. Number one, we have to have unity with God and with each other. He talks about in this passage about us being the temple. We are we're God's people. That, that makes us unify. I, I've shared this. It's been a while. I'll share it again. When we talk about God's people, if you trace that through the Bible, what you'll see is you'll see God dwelling with man in the garden. He, he was there with him. What you'll see later on is as, as God uh, dealt with Moses, he had a tabernacle. That was the dwelling place of God. As you continue on in the Old Testament, what did God finally lead someone to do? He led David's son Solomon to build a permanent structure that we know as the temple. And what was in that temple? That was the dwelling place of God. Even as you get to the New Testament, that temple was still there. However, something changed dramatic, dramatically when you flip over to the New Testament. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That flesh was who? Jesus. 
is right. You're in church, you're in doubt, the answer is probably Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus came to earth and He lived among us. Jesus was the presence of God on earth. As He was walking around, He was fully God and fully man. Then Jesus died and He rose again and He ascended back to heaven. And then when you read the book of Acts, something else happened. Those believers received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul starts talking about the temple, but he never is talking about a facility or a building. When you read through the New Testament, you'll never hear language like we sometimes use today. And I'm I'm not saying don't call a building a church, but in the New Testament, you would never hear anybody. Paul would never say, well, let's go to the church. In Paul's mind, the church was human beings. It was people. And what we see here is that God has brought a people to himself. And part of that unity is that we have unity in the spirit. We are the temple of God here today. We we are the temple of God as we interact with other believers. We're the temple of God. We're God's people as we interact uh, in this world. And to do that the way that God has called us to, it's going to take a sense of unity. He mentioned several things in this idea of unity. He mentions humility. He he mentions uh, to have a lowliness of spirit. Not 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 braggadocious or haughty. Or those kinds of things. He mentions gentleness. That means we don't treat each other harshly. I'm afraid today, especially sometimes in the military, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll consider meekness weakness. And that's not the case. You, you can be a strong, strong person and be gentle and be meek and be kind. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. It's interesting, when I was a, when I was a pastor, we had a, we had a situation come up, and I was, I was associate pastor, we had a senior pastor, and we had this one individual who would always use this language. And every time we had a little disagreement, I know y'all probably never heard of churches that had disagreements, but sometimes in the church that I served, we had some disagreements. And when we did, he would, he would always say, it's, it, we finally figured it out, he would say, now, pastor, y'all need to... Y'all just need to be humble and, and, and understanding of other people. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. But what I, the pattern I started noticing, and, and me and the other pastor finally figured it out, is what he really meant was, what I really want you to do is, I'm going to say that, but doggone it, I want you to do what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. That's not what humility means. Humility is not me walking up to you and saying, doggone it, you better be humble, because you better do what I want. And that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that there's going to, in, in the sense of, We're going to work together for the good. It's not saying believers are always going to agree, but we're going to have unity on some things. We're going to to say loving God and loving other people, that's a key. We're going to say we're we're all going in the same direction. Look at verse 7 in that same chapter. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, as God has given us gifts, God has also blessed us all with the same grace. Uh, There's none of us who, we all needed the same grace. Uh, There's none of us who, well, you know, God's God's given me grace, but you, you sure needed a whole lot more than I did. No, no, no. We all needed God's grace under this idea of unity. Now, we read this verse earlier, but I want you to look down at it in verse 16. I want to point it out one more time. He compares God's people to a body. He uses the the temple imagery, but he also uses the term body, like the body of Christ. So look at verse 16. He says, from whom the whole body, 
joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It, it talks about in the body there are, there are joints, right? What he's saying is that you and I, we're the joints that help with the working of the entire body. There's a pastor who I, I came to know over the years. His name is Ken Hemphill. And he tells a story about when he was a, when he was a little boy, he had a job to do from his dad. And his, and his job was to, was to, was to move this, this big stump. And he was, a, he, he, self, he was a self-proclaimed bulldog. That's what he said. And I kind of believe it. He was real type A and he's a, he's a go-getter kind of guy. He said, even as a little boy, he said, I'm going to get out here and I'm going to get this stump. And as you can imagine, he's a little boy, but he's doing everything he can. He's trying to go over there and manhandle. So he's getting down and he's squatting and he's trying to lift it. He tries to push it. He tries to pull it. And the dad just lets him go on and on forever. And of course, as you can imagine, he, 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 he couldn't do it. But then the dad, who had a little more experience than the little boy, he showed him this concept of a fulcrum, of getting a big long limb or stick with, another, with a rock and just kind of use the leverage and then that little boy could come way over here and guess what, he could pull down and what would happen to that stump, sure enough? It would pop back up. He had to use a long enough stick so that young Ken Hemphill could simply pull it down. What Paul is saying is that you and I, every part of the body is important. You and I may very well be the joint that helps bring everyone together. Having unity with God and with other believers is point number one. Point number two is this. Not only do we have unity, but we need to live out correct teaching. And I'm very intentional as I say that. Let me say it again. Live out correct teaching. It involves two aspects. Number one is having the correct beliefs. But then number two is having the correct behavior. One without the other does not work. They are both important. Let's go back and look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 5. He makes this great statement of faith. He says there's one Lord. He says there's one faith. He's being very exclusive here. It sounds very much like Christ when Jesus said in John 14, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's saying that uh, to live out this Christian life, to have this purpose, we have to have the right belief. And he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and through all and and in all. And then in verses 9 and 10 and 11, uh, verses 9 and 10 specifically, he, he, he gives some comment about this passage that he quotes from the Psalms, by the way, in verse 8. He ascended to lead a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Paul says... Uh, In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. What he's essentially saying is that he's giving an example of Christ who what? He descended. He he is the one who stepped down from heaven and came to us and then ascended uh, back to heaven. When he did, he, he set the captives free. That will be all of us. And he gave us spiritual gifts. Paul is, is reminding us that this idea of one faith is, is, is this idea of correct teaching. Uh, the, the idea in a, in a world where many times people believe anything goes, according to God's Word, he says there's a very specific God, and he, he is the God of the Bible. There's a very specific way to salvation. It is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
So when we talk about living out correct teaching, that's, that's the right beliefs. But one pastor put it to me this way before, and I, I never forgot it. He asked me, he said, you, go th- you may go through the Word of God. He said, but does the Word of God go through you? Which I thought was a very powerful uh, way to put it. And what Paul does in this idea of living out correct teaching is this. Not only does he, he lays out, okay, here's the right beliefs. But then he goes on to say, here's the right behaviors. And he does this in the rest of Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to talk through that uh, with us this morning, beginning in verse 22. He does something I call the put-on, put-off principle. It is, it is very simple principle. It is, I'm no longer going to do this over here, but I'm now going to do this. It's the same thing we do in, in whether it be athletic training, whether it be academic training, to put on those studies, to put on that physical training, I have to put off something else. It may be diet, it may be sleep patterns, it may be something, but to do something over here, I've got to put off something over here. And he gives some extremely practical examples that I want to show you. Look at verse 22 is is where he begins. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Remember, Paul said that earlier in this chapter that before we were saved, we were dead in sin. And then he says this in verse 23. Here's the put on. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then verse 24, put on the new self. Now, there's the put away the old and put on the new. And then he gives several examples under this idea of living out the Christian life. Here's what he says. Verse 25, look at it with me. He says, put away falsehood. Well, if I'm going to put away falsehood, you could also say quit lying. What will be the put on counterpart of putting off falsehood? Speaking the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. I read a statistic this week. I don't, know, I don't know how they get these things. I've never been called and asked any of these kinds of things, but they get them from somewhere. But in the, it was two years ago, 70% of America lied in any given week. So I thought about that. I thought, wow, that's a staggering concept. But then I thought, wait a minute, if 70% of the people were honest, well, if that's almost three quarters of them, maybe the rest of them were lying too. Maybe we all lie once a week. I don't know. But that was staggering to me. But Paul simply says what? He says, here's what that's going to look like. Because you have the truth inside of you, now speak the truth in love. Uh, Speak the truth with our neighbor. Look at the next one. Look at uh, verse uh, 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which, by the way, if you rewind and talk about Christ-centered relationships, that is sound advice. Don't let the sun go down on your anger in your marriages. Amen? It's a good, good thing. But he says here, don't stay angry. So if I'm not to stay angry, what is, what, is, what is my put on? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. What is he saying there? He's saying if I am angry, deal with it right then. Deal with it then. If I ignored it, it's not going away. I know in your life you've never seen anybody ignore an anger problem and it caused problems later. But in my experience, I have had that happen. I'm sure you have too. Anger will destroy us and it'll eat us from the inside out. Paul has a very simple solution. 
He says, now I'm not saying it's easy, and I don't think Paul's saying it's easy, but he's simply saying if we're going to have this unity and we're going to live out this faith, he's saying if we have anger, just don't let the sun go down on it. That means deal with it. Do it now. Deal with it now. Very simple. Put on, put off. Verse 28, let him who steals steal no longer, but rather work with his hands. It was funny this morning. A lot of times on Sunday mornings, I'll go for a run. And when I run, I... I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching my sermon while I'm running. I don't have notes in front of me. It just kind of forces. It's kind of a weird thing that I do. And I'm just thinking through my sermon. And I was to this put on, put off point, And I was thinking, what are those things? It was this, this, this. And in my mind, when I thought, let him who steals, an alarm went off at a, at a building right beside me. I'm sitting here running and thinking about stealing. All of a sudden, rrr, rrr, rrr. And I was like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know, Sunday morning, nobody's around, you know. But I thought that was pretty funny. Let him who steals steal no longer. Very simply. Don't steal. Don't be dishonest. But do what? But work, he says, work with our own hands. Let him labor. Do honest work that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul takes the put on, put off principle to another level. He says, not only don't steal. Well, okay, well, don't steal. But the things that we do have and the labor that we do put out, he says, also do it so that you may have a help for someone else. That means God's called us to be a blessing to others. And by the way, let me say this. I have made a lot of financial decisions in my life that I regretted. But I can share with you for what it's worth that I have never regretted giving anything away to God's work or to someone in need. There's been decisions I made when I said, I wish I hadn't bought that car. I wish I hadn't bought all those fishing rods. There's, there's been a lot of decisions like that, but I, my wife and I, she, she can attest to it. In fact, she's actually the generous one in the family, more so than me. I, both of us can, can honestly say for what it's worth, and I hope it's an encouragement, I've never been able to say, I, I, boy, I sure regret giving that away to God's work. Never has that happened. That's the put-on, put-off principle. Not only not being steel or dishonest, but to, but to be a blessing. Amen. That's what it means to, to put on these things. Uh, two more. Look at verse 29. He says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Well, okay, so, so what does that mean? That means slanderous things. That means things that are, that are, that are not helpful. That, what you, that's what your grandmother was getting at when she said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Paul says, well, what do we do then? We put off all those things, and what do we put on? Very simply. He says, good, in verse 29, say what is good for building up as fits the occasion. And then in verse 30, he says to put off what? Slander and malice. Don't, don't say things that are, that are hurtful, but do what instead? Look at verse 32, very simply. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving as God has forgiven you. This has to do, when we say live out the correct teaching, it has to do with belief and behavior. We have unity with the Lord, with each other. We live out this faith. But then number three... We very simply, we grow in maturity. We grow in maturity. Look at verse 11 one more time. He talks about in verse 11 Christian leaders, essentially. Leaders in the church with sometimes specific spiritual gifts. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Many times in churches, we'll have it wrong. I know that was my experience sometimes over the years is the mentality was that we, we hire pastors and we hire all these people to do the ministry. Well, what this is saying is that everybody's spiritual gift is for the purpose of the equipping of the saints. 
I hope and pray that as God uses me, I hope that it inspires and encourages you to do God's work. Because your place is I'll never be. You meet people I'll never meet. The same thing could be said to the other way around. God has called us to serve and He's called us to grow. And then he says in verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith, there's unity again, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That word carries this idea of completion, the fullness. It is a growth in maturity so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. When he says tossed to and fro by the waves, it's the same word he uses that Luke uses to describe the raging sea of Galilee when Jesus walked on the water. He's saying don't, don't, you have to be tossed to and fro uh, by doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way to him who is the head, that is Jesus Christ. The fullness of God. The idea is that once we are saved, God is not finished with us. In fact, it is just the beginning. God's plan for you and for me is to make us more and more like the image of Christ. I want to illustrate that to you uh, this morning, but what I, what I need is I need four brave people to trust that I'm not going to make you do anything crazy, but I do need you to come up here. Can I get four people just to come up very quickly, and I'm just going to tell you where to stand and let me talk through something with you. Can I get, can I get a couple more real quick? All right. One, two, three four there we go there's four now Theo I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna put you on the stand about keep walking keep walking stop right there and you can face them okay. and you're just gonna stay with me you're gonna stand right here and if you'll go that way all right this is going to illustrate this idea of moving to maturity now in the middle here she's going to represent Christ and we're going to talk about what it means to be in Christ so just keep it in your mind she represents Christ how to do it. It's okay. Over here, this man represents the worst sinner that's ever lived. <laughs> he, he's the kind of guy who, if somebody, if, if a little old lady needed help across the street, he would, he would run away. He wouldn't help them. He's, he's, this is the worst sinner that ever lived. Sorry to do that to you. All right, now, over here, she represents the best Christian that's ever lived. Here she is. Just, just like real life, right? He's the best Christian you'll ever meet. She's right here. Boom. That's, that's, that's the goal. Now, what I want to share is, 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 is for, for illustration's sake, let's say right now we're, we're illustrating a person who is not a Christian. Now, we all know that there are degrees of, of, of different ways we fall short of the glory of God, but we also know the Bible teaches what? That we have to come through Christ to be saved because all are sinners. Now, as we interact with people, there may be someone who comes across your path and maybe brings you a little closer to the fold. So you just slide over just a little bit, stop right there. And then one day, maybe this person becomes a Christian. So come over here by, by our center who is Christ here, the center. So this person has gone from darkness to light. No matter where she was at on the spectrum, she's become a Christian. Now, come over here to the other side. I want to show you something. The idea of what we're getting at with the fullness, what Paul's talking about when he says being 
being, being grown into the head that is Christ, is that the idea is, is that once we're saved, God is not finished with us, but that God is hopefully, as you kind of keep inching this way, you are sliding, and that's, and that's perfect right there, you are sliding and moving upward, closer and closer into the image of Christ. Every one of us in this room is somewhere in between these, these two extremes. Now, my, my encouragement to you is to think of it like this. Once we're saved, we're saved. I believe the Bible teaches that once a person places their faith in Christ, that God has them for eternity. I do not know how else to define eternal life. Amen. Now, once a person becomes a Christian, the idea from there is we're to grow. Now, there might be some ups, there might be some downs, there might be some times where you don't feel quite a Christian that you did. But over the years, there should be a gradual tendency to say, you know, I can see where God is working in my life and God is making me more and more into the image of Christ. Thank you all very much. Give him a hand. That was great. He says in verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In just a moment, we're going to take communion as we, as we usually do the first Sunday of the month. But I'll share this with you as we transition. It is my hope and my prayer that this passage has, has spoke to our hearts because I, I think it has the potential of, of really making a difference for us because I believe that if we can grasp somehow this idea that God is calling us to be more and more like Him. I'll say this as well. He uses the word grace in this passage three times. I think that's important because I don't want you to leave here and be discouraged. I don't want you to hear all this and go, oh, chaplain, I just, I sure don't feel like I'm doing all that stuff. His grace, He's given a measure of grace to each of us. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I would love to talk with you about that and, and give you an opportunity to, to see through the Scripture what it means to, to be a Christian. If you're here and, and, and you are a Christian and you, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the good news is that God is still working in your life to, to bring the measure of the fullness of Christ. And, and as you live that out, it is my prayer that as we take communion together, it is a reminder of that very grace that we need for every day. Because as we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves that God has done something for us through Jesus Christ. That God has paid for our sins. And that as we take this communion, I, I, my prayer is that God will use it to give us an encouragement and, and remind us of His grace and help us to have Christ-centered purpose in our life. Let's pray.